Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 23 all the way into chapter 3, verse 6. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, he being Jesus, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? He said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate bread, ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest? And he also gave some to his companions. Then he told them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to him, he said to them, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. This is God's word. Um, and let's pray. God bless this word as we receive it. God, I pray that our hearts would be keen to hear what you are saying this morning. And as always, God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to flash you back Uh, to my own personal history. Uh, So we're talking 2007. Um, I'm fresh out of seminary, uh, and I've just started serving at a church in North Carolina, the church that we grew up in. Uh, Like grew up in, I say, say, but we went to college there, but that's kind of like growing up, right? Um, And so we're back at that church, and uh, I have the opportunity to preach. Uh, I don't know why they gave... Uh, I don't know why you give anyone fresh out of seminary an opportunity to preach. Like, I feel like you need to actually, like, be with real people again um, before you do that. Uh, But they did, and they gave it to me, and my head was just full of seminary. And I preached my first sermon to to Matthew's account of this. And I preached for an hour and 25 minutes. Right? And it wasn't that good, like... (laughs) It wasn't that good, like, keep on, you know. Nobody was like, keep going. Nobody was standing up. There were no amens. I lectured. I'm going to be honest. I didn't preach. I lectured on the text for an hour and 25 minutes. And I thought it was amazing. I did not recognize that gloss over an eye was not just, like, I thought they were pre-tears. Right, just that how beautiful the truth of the word of the Lord was to them, 
and I knew that I had nailed it. Um, and uh, it was over, and nobody really said too much, a sign that they were just really just chewing on the riches of the word of the Lord that they got. Uh, and then my pastor said, that was, and he took that beat, <laughs> right? That beat's never comfortable. That was biblical. <laughs> which is good. <laughs> I, suppose it's, I suppose there's reserved a level that's worse than that. Um, but I love this text. I love this story. And the reason that the sermon went so long is because there's so much to talk about here. And there's so much that we're even going to break kind of the plan that I had and come back to this text in a few weeks when I preach again. So next week, uh, Chuck Wade, who is a friend of Melissa's and I from college, who is a missionary in Turkey, and who we pray for regularly, is in town and will be preaching. The following week, uh, we'll have a uh, service uh, that is prayer and worship. And then the following week after that, I will be back and we'll jump back into Mark. Um, but we're going to break this into two because I want to honor the members meeting, but there is so much in this text about who Jesus is, about how we understand the law, about how we understand the redemptive work of God, and about who we are as God's people. And so what I want to do today is talk about those last two points in light of Jesus. How should we, how do we understand this law? What's going on with the law here? And, and why does Jesus view and, and treat the law like he does? In other words, why is there contention between the Pharisees and Jesus? And then what practically does this story mean for us? And then the next time we get together, we're going to read this text again. And we're going to go all the way in on Jesus just like breathtakingly like powerful declaration that he is the son of man and Lord, comma, even of the Sabbath. Like that one statement is remarkable. So let's just hop in. I love this story because it's a very human story. It's the Sabbath and people are hungry and... and uh, <clears throat> And Jesus and his disciples are walking as they, they do a lot, and they walk, and, and we can assume they've been walking for some time, and they enter into grain fields, right? And we don't know whose grain fields that they were, and what's funny is that that's not what matters here, right? Like, in our Western American private property, like, mindset, like, that's what we're wondering is, like, did they ask permission to pluck this person's grains? That's not an issue. That's not even a thought right? They walk through the grains, and they're hungry, and here are grains, and they're, plop, they're plucking them and eating them. I don't know why that's delicious or if how hungry you are that you do that, um, but they were. They were plucking the grains, and then Matthew goes even further and says they were eating them. And the Pharisees come to them and say, come to Jesus, and they say, look at your disciples. They're plucking grain on the Sabbath, and that is unlawful violation, right? Like the Pharisees, like the self-proclaimed hall monitors of, of first century Israel, 
Like they come and they're like, violation, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And before we even get to Jesus' response, like we have to get to how they got there. Because I don't know if you've read the Old Testament law, but there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. And several of them concern the Sabbath. But this idea of plucking grain is not even one of them. Like we have to be very careful with how we talk about what's next. Because what we don't want to say is that Jesus broke the law. That he broke God's law. That's not what this story is. Right? So there are several laws about the Sabbath. Right? The big one comes in the Ten Commandments. And because it's in the Ten, the Decalogue, right, we know that it's really important. Like the Ten Commandments is basically, uh, <clears throat> it's basically the summation of all the commandments that are to come. Right? It, is, it is the chief rule book for the people of God. Now, we already know because Jesus has told us and because as a church we remind ourselves of this and because I think it comes up a lot as Christians, right? we already know that Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, said that it was to love God with everything you've got and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus says that, he gives a two-part summation of all of the law and the prophets. He says, in this all the law is contained. But prior to kind of that declaration, even though you could tease that out as Jesus did, right? even though you could draw those principles out and, and quote those two texts and, and as Jesus did, if you were to ask, well, what is the truest and purest summation of all the law, you would say the Ten Commandments, which means the things in the Ten Commandments were that important. And right up there, right, top three, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And see, this commandment is really unique too because it draws back to God's original intent. You see, the, the rest of the commandments that follow, they sort, of, they sort of veer off on this idea that because people are sinful and broken, right? They're like Genesis 3 commandments, so to speak. Because some people are sinful and broken, we need to establish a few things in order to make society function well, especially this new society that God is forming called Israel, his people. And so you get things like honor your mother and father, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness. These things are very interpersonal and they exist because sin exists in our hearts. But these first three, and particularly this one about the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, what, what does that hearken back to? Not Genesis 3, but Genesis 1, to the very first poem, the very first story, the very first uh, understanding that we get of God and how God creates. And, and it doesn't even stop in Genesis 1, right? It goes into Genesis 2, but you, you know how it goes. God creates everything. Six days, he's just he's separating and he's filling. He's doing creative work. He's working. And he's making everything good. He's doing good work. Not only that, very good work. And then we get to day seven. It says that God rested from all the work, all that he had done. God rested. And what's interesting is this word rest, this word rest and this word Sabbath functionally are the same thing. And so when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and you look at those first six days into the seventh day, what you begin to see is this. 
And this is why it's such a travesty that day six is where Genesis 1 ends and that day seven is lumped in with Genesis 2. The travesty is that it is the culmination of this song. It's the culmination of God's creative work. The goal is Sabbath. Sabbath rest. God has done this. And listen, this is how you know, because it's a song, it's a poem, and so when you read into this poem, you see there are verses, and the verses all start the same. And God said. And then there's a refrain at the end of each verse. It was evening and it was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. It was evening and it was morning. But then when you keep the poem together, you come to day seven. And God said, it's the next verse. It's the next stanza. Let's rest. Let's rest. But what don't you see? The refrain. There is no, it was evening and it was morning, the seventh day. So if you were reading it in a poetry class instead of in your Christian school science class, that's an unfair poke at Christian school science classes. I went to a Christian school. I was in a Christian school science class. Maybe it's not that unfair. But if you were reading it in a poetry class, you would find that striking, wouldn't you? That is something you would analyze. You would say, okay, in each of these other verses, in each of these other stanzas, it ends with this refrain. It was evening, it was morning. But here we come to this final stanza and it doesn't. If that's interesting to you, you're in good company because it was interesting to the author of Hebrews as well. And so the author of Hebrews looks at that and he comes to this conclusion. They come to this conclusion. If I can... It's before First Peter, sorry. This is the conclusion that we see. If, so now listen to this, for somewhere he, being the Holy Spirit, has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, day God rested from all his work. And again, in that passage, now he's referring to a passage, Psalm 95 now, and I know this is a lot of light work. Write it down, read Hebrews 4, Genesis 1, or Genesis 2, Psalm 95, and, and listen to this. But I want to give you the summation. He says, <clears throat> somewhere it's written, on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And then again now, in this passage that David has written by the Holy Spirit, it says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it. So the author of Hebrews is saying that the rest of God that David is speaking about in Psalm 95, that God swore that, the people of, that his people would not enter, right, can be entered. And that rest is the Sabbath rest, the rest of the seventh day. You guys following me on that? 
Like, because I know that that's a lot of jumping around. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that even today, if you will not harden your heart, you can presently enter the rest that is designated as the seventh day Sabbath rest. If Joshua had given them rest, he says later, God would not have spoken later about that. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people for the person who has entered his rest and has rested from his own works just as God did. So listen to what he's saying. Like, I want you to hear how amazing what he's saying is. What the author of Hebrews is literally saying is that that seventh day rest, if we read it rightly, remains for us to enter into today. And we enter into it by faith. All right? So now we come back to this, this poem and we ask that question, why is it that it says evening, morning, first day, evening, morning, second day, evening, morning, third day, so on and so forth. But we get to the seventh day and it doesn't say that. Because what we are supposed to understand is that God's intent for the seventh day, the Sabbath day of rest, was that it was not to end. And Genesis 2 then becomes this dream, this vision that God has, this creative plan that God has for what it looks like for a people to live inside of God's rest. This Sabbath was not meant to end, right? I love it. And, and I could, like, one day we may do, like, a 10-week series on Genesis 1 and 2. Like, there is that much stuff in it. But think about this progression, how it ends. Evening to morning. So what's the progression of evening to morning? Think about that. In the evening, it's starting to get dark. And by the time you get to the night, it is full darkness, right? And especially if you're in the ancient Near East or if you're an Israelite hearing this, evening isn't like 5.30. Evening is night, right? What we call night is what they would call evening. And now if you live pre-electricity, and in a time where oil is sparse and expensive, scarce, I should say, and expensive, right? Lighting lamps, like we experienced this when we, when we were in Haiti, and I kind of loved it. We were in Wanameth, Haiti. And when the sun went down, you know what it was? Dark. It was dark. And so what, what, what's happening here in this poem is that we all find ourselves in the state of darkness, and at the end of each of God's creative sort of expression and work, we just get a little bit more light, a little bit more revelation, evening to morning, evening to morning, evening to morning. And then the Sabbath doesn't end. Like, this is amazing. So this is the Sabbath that God has created for his people to enter into. And this is the basis for the command, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The idea is that you live into this Sabbath. You live in the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for, for us to live in. That was the goal. The goal was Sabbath rest, God and man together, God and woman together, God and humanity together in Sabbath rest. And so God sets up and establishes ways for us to reflect on what that really would have meant. And I want us to understand just briefly 
that in the Sabbath, though there was rest, there was work. What? There was work. Think about this. God doesn't say like, God doesn't place Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 2, right? And say like, have fun. I mean, he does. (laughs) But he doesn't say have fun. What does he say? Be fruitful and multiply. Like live in relationship with each other and expand that relationship creatively in children. Parents, that's work. Even on the best day. Like even on the best day, that's work. Right? Then what else does he say? Tend the garden and keep it. That's work. Care for this garden. Care for this planet that I've given you. Care for creation that I've placed you in. Care for these things. That's work. Now you're starting to see why we need to break this up over two weeks. Because we're just getting to talk about Sabbath. That's work, but what it's not is labor. I want to distinguish between work and labor. There is Sabbath work. It is the work of flourishing of humanity. It is the work of sustenance. God has provided this garden so that their physical needs would be met, so that their emotional, relational needs would be met, so that they would have sustenance and beauty. But they have to work. But then labor enters in after sin. Labor takes work and distorts it. Think about it. God gives them two jobs, be fruitful and multiply, and then work the garden and keep it. And then what is the curse? What is the curse? To the woman, you're going to have extended, extreme pain and childbearing. What do we even call that? Labor. And to the man, what's going to happen? The ground's going to work against you. It's going to fight against you. That thing that you were created to do, that work that you were created to work into, it's no longer work. It's a battle. Right? Like, you're going to work and toil and labor, and the ground is going to fight against you. And you guys feel that, don't you? Like you feel that in your lives, not just in your regular work, right? Not just in your job, that you feel it there, but in your spiritual lives and in your interpersonal lives. You feel like you move a certain length and then something comes and you're, you're back where you started or you fall back a little bit. It's like Sisyphus, right? Like we push in this boulder up this daggone mountain and every night it just rolls back down. And, and, and sometimes you wonder, like, what is the point of this? Is that just me? Like, what is the point of this? That's because that's labor. You, you weren't created for that, but you were created for work. And on the Sabbath, there is work, not labor. And so it's interesting that when you get to all those laws of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, they surround things like not putting a plow to the ground and not making your servants do it either. Don't bake bread, right? Like that bread baking process was long and it was hard. Bake bread. Don't do these tasks that move you out of work into labor. And this is the heart and the spirit of the law because you were created for rest with God. And so now we come to this text and Jesus and his disciples are plucking grains and just eating it. And I said in jest, like, oh, who wants to do that? Right, because the best bread like processed that Bama, right? Like, it, just messy. Like, but you know what I mean. Like, you bread is not just like. Have you ever taken a grain from the ground and just popped it in your mouth? Is it as good 
as like just fresh, warm bread, right? There's no controversy about that answer. But they're plucking grains and eating it, and yet the Sabbath, uh, yet the, the Pharisees, they seem to take, like, they seem to take offense to this. Why? Why? Because they're not acting simply on the law. They're acting on all of the laws that they have set up to protect themselves from breaking the law. And I want us to see this in our lives because I fear we do this as well. We fence the law for fear of breaking it. So here's what I mean by that, or here's kind of the analogy that that comes from. Imagine for a second, I know this will be hard since we've been talking about Genesis 2. Imagine for a second that there's a tree that's forbidden for you to eat. But like imagine that in your own context, right? There's a tree, and man, the fruit looks good, right? It looks like, like better than the best mango, which mango is my love language. And so like it looks better than that, right? But you can't eat it. You can't. You, you can't. I mean, you could, but you can't, right? So you may be a person who's like, I know that if I just keep walking by that tree, I'm going to climb up it and eat one of those fruit. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build a fence around the tree. And if I just build that fence around the tree, then I won't be able to get to the tree. And so what you do is you build a fence around the tree and you say people, like, the law is don't go to that fence. Is that the law? No. The law is don't eat from the fruit of the tree. And you've said the law is don't go to that fence. Right? You die. Your children come. They're like, man, I could climb that fence so easy. Oh, Let's build another higher fence around that fence. <laughs> now it's getting ridiculous. And you should see that. It's ridiculous. So they do. They build another higher fence. And they're like, you know what? The law is don't go to that higher fence. Was that the law? No. That wasn't even the law that you got before. That wasn't the law. Right? And so then those people die. And their kids come and they're like, our dads didn't even know about ladders. We better build a higher <laughs> fence. <laughs> right? In fact, maybe a wall. We'll build a wall, right? Because building a wall is always a great idea. We'll build a wall, right? And so they build a fortified wall around the fence, around the fence, around the tree. Two things have happened now. They've created a law that was never the intent of the law. And the yard that they were supposed to live freely in is now just wall. So they're miserable because the freedom of the yard has been lost. All in fear of breaking the law that would break the law that would break the law that actually gets you to the real law. They fenced the law. And this is what the Pharisees did. This is what God's people did for a long time. They would say, oh, this, it says don't work on the Sabbath. Well, what is work? Well, the scriptures actually have said a few things, but just to be safe, we're not even going to not make bread. We're not going to pluck grain. And that was actually one of the laws that fenced the laws that fenced the law. We're not going to pluck grain. Plucking grain was never against the law. It was against their rules that would protect you from potentially, maybe one day, accidentally stumbling into breaking the law. It's that foolish. And so people would literally, like, they would do all this work on Friday so that they could just sit there and, and, 
and not live in freedom on Saturday. The freedom that God was actually designing the Sabbath for. The rest that God was designing the Sabbath for. And so Jesus comes through and his disciples eat. And the Pharisees say, look at your law-breaking disciples. And this is where we're going to stop. This is where we're going to like lean in. And I think hopefully as a people draw something out. Because I love what Jesus says here. He says, the Sabbath was not made for, or the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. Functionally, what Jesus is saying is you've taken something that was good and you've turned it into something that's bad and dangerous. And you've prohibited any sense of good on it. Like, we'll get, to ne- we'll get the next time we get through this, like, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so are you accusing me of this? Right? And then we'll begin to understand why it is that the Pharisees and the Herodians, like, this is an unholy alliance, right? This is like a suicide squad of... of Okay, so that's one comic reference too far. That's fine, <laughs> right? Like, this is, <laughs> this is an unholy alliance, right, against Jesus. How is it that they come together, right? It's in Jesus' proclamation of being Lord and of lawful. But before that, he says, listen, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is not bad. The Sabbath is good. And the things that you are meant to do on the Sabbath are good. You must do good on the Sabbath. God is not angry at you for eating on the Sabbath or for doing these things because you were created for that rest. All right? So now what's interesting is that in one end of the scope, there's idolatry. And what idolatry does is it takes a good thing and it makes it a God thing. It's really bad. And so you say, man, food is good. I live for food. I worship food. Yeah, you wouldn't say I worship food, but everything you do surrounds food. And food determines how you live your life. And, and, and not just in the sense that without food you don't have energy and you die, but like you will do anything, right? You are obsessed with food. It, it rules over you. You don't control how you eat it. You don't control what you eat. Like you have no control in it. You've given yourself over to food. Food is a good thing. In that moment, you've made it a God thing. You've made it an ultimate thing. It's idolatry. But on the other end, there's like extreme legalism. You take something that God has called good and clean, and you make it unclean. Peter struggled with this, right? Remember when... Like there's Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I feel like there should have been like Peter and the amazing pork-covered dream blanket, right? <laughs> and, and, and God just, and I, I say that because I'm not a seafood guy, but for those of you who love shrimp and shellfish, it's all on there, right? Like there's this buffet of just goodness that comes down, and Peter won't eat it even though God is saying eat. What does God say? What I've called uh, clean, don't, don't you dare call unclean. 
right? There's this legalism, this sense of legalism. And what's happening here is the Pharisees are taking what God has called clean and good, and they're labeling it unclean for the sake of control. And how often do we do that? How often do we say, like, this is what God has said, and in order to do what God has said, we need to do this, 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 this. And this. So you know what? Actually, I don't know, I'll just pick one out of the top of my head. Sex is bad. And we move away from we move away from the intent of the law, right? Covenant relationship that demonstrates the glory of God for the mutual benefit of people. all the way over to, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about it. We're going to make everybody really uncomfortable about it. We're going to make sure that we are up in everybody's business about what's going on with it. And we're going to come in like Pharisees, right? Like the, the, the like self-proclaimed hall monitors of the day. And we're going to like, boom, violation. Like, boom, violation. Right? That is not, as a church, listen, that's not who we're called to be. And if in your heart right now, like, you're feeling this tension of like, yeah, but sin is sin. Yes, but that's not the point. The point is that the best way to avoid sin, the best way to live into God's creative plan for you is what Jesus is saying, is to actually live in it, to live in that rest, to live in the light, right? Like, our job is not to, like, seek out and, and be like, ha, you're in darkness, and like leave. It's to live in light and to call people into light and to show how living in the light is that much more desirable than living in darkness, right? Like this is, this is what Jesus is doing. Like think about it. Think about all the people looking at Jesus' disciples as they walk through and pluck grains and eat them. And they're like, man, those grains look good. <laughs> Mostly because I don't have any right now, <laughs> you know? And I wish I had that freedom. See, the Sabbath was for you. God's rest is for you. God's freedom is for you. God's freedom is for us. So as a church, who are we going to be? As a people, who are you and I going to be? Are we going to be a people who fence and fence and fence to the point that God's good, gracious gifts to all people aren't even visible anymore? Or are we going to be a people who live in the glorious rest of God? And this rest is possible because the Lord of the Sabbath is our Lord. Right? There's fear and there's freedom. There's law and there's grace. There's striving and there's rest. Let's live in rest. Let's be a people of the Sabbath. Pluck those grains, fam. Eat them wherever you find them. For God's glory. It's a part of following Jesus. And so it's interesting... What's interesting 
is that Jesus doesn't say, yeah, we don't care about the law. Jesus' response is not one of the law doesn't matter to me. Because Jesus doesn't break the law. Jesus' response is the law is meant to bring us into rest. It's the spirit of the law. Rest. And that rest was bought at a price. And we remember that price at this table. So I'm going to pray and then we're going we're to just observe the Lord's table.